family, welcome to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome to you too in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, If you don't know who I am, I'm Chad, I'm the pastor in training here. It's a joy to bring the word of God to you all. We are continuing our sermon series through Luke and entitled the sermon series, The Gospel of Luke, The Upside Down Kingdom. And if, I, if my arm was twisted to give this sermon a title, I would call it The Cross-Shaped Life. Uh, let's pray. Father, it is a joy to gather again with your people and to praise you for who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus. <coughs> Thank you for our worship team and just the appropriateness of the songs that we just sang. Lord, you you bid us to come and die that we might truly live, and that's what we see this morning in the text. So I just pray that as we look to Christ this morning, we would remember that it's through his sacrifice that we have been enabled to take up our own crosses and to follow him and to deny ourselves and to live for you, Lord, and for your glory and for the good of other people. We love you and praise you and pray that you would be honored and glorified through your word and in our hearts this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever gone to do something with the expectation that it would be easy and fun only to find out that it's really hard? It may be really hard and worth it. That'll do better with where we're going this morning, but maybe even just really hard and miserable. A few years ago, I went to visit a friend in Telluride, and while we were there, he said, hey, I figured we'd go skiing. I can get you onto the mountain for free. And as a kid, I used to go skiing two or three times a winter with my parents, but I hadn't done that since I was probably 12 years old, and at this time, I was 28 or 29 But I've always been a pretty decent athlete, and as many of you might remember, I play hockey, and so I figured I know how to use my edges on the ice rink, on my skates, so skiing is going to be fine. I'm not going to do any black diamonds, but skiing is going to go great. It wasn't great at all. It was one of the hardest days of my life, and if you've been skiing, or even if you haven't, you know what, I hope you know what I'm saying, I pizzaed. The whole way down the mountain, like I could barely carve. I was going slower than the five-year-olds zooming by me. And my, I remember my hip flexors and my gluteus maximus was sore for the whole afternoon from like noon on and then for the next four days. You know how it is when you use muscles that you didn't even know you had. I fell a bunch of times. It was hard and miserable. And my expectations were, this is going to be easy. This is going to be fun. I bet many of you have experienced something like that. You, you taste some good food and you get the recipe and you're like, this is going to be easy. I cook all the time and just your kitchen explodes. It's on fire. You're angry. You're about to throw the food out. Maybe you're, you're building some furniture. You know, 10 years into marriage, I've learned, nope. <laughs> yeah, you know, we used to think we're going to build some furniture together. It's going to be easy. It's going to be fun. And now it's like, hey, Audrey, I'm going to build a piece of furniture. Can you go ahead and leave the house? Because I don't want to get in a huge fight over the building of this furniture. What about a do-it-yourself car repair? You watch it on YouTube. It seems like it's going to be easy. And then it's horrible. 
You guys get what I'm saying. In the same way, I wonder how often we forget that following Jesus doesn't mean life will be easy. We have expectations. It's, it's going to be easy. I'm going to be able to do it. I'm going to thrive in it. And we forget that it can be really hard. And that's for you Christians. And, and for those of you in here who aren't Christians, I wonder if you've been considering following Jesus lately. But it's because you think he's going to make your life easier. I love you enough and he loves you enough to tell you that's not why you should come to Jesus. It's hard to follow Jesus. And I would argue following him for 10 years that actually life is harder following Jesus than when you're not. In the text this morning, we're going to see Jesus teach what his path will be and what discipleship really is. And it's going to shatter expectations. Following Jesus will be hard. Worth it, but really hard. Jesus decimates the prosperity gospel in this teaching on discipleship. Uh, We can't and we shouldn't come to him if we want an easy life. A life where he exists to make us happy. We don't come to Jesus because we think he will help us gain the world. Even though in one sense he will. But that's in the next life, not in this life. But in this life, he says, we can gain the world and lose our souls, or we can lose ourselves to Jesus and gain life, real, abundant, eternal life, life with God, reconciled to God. But the challenge for us as Christians is this, we have to lose our lives daily. It wasn't just that one-time thing that we did when we became followers of Jesus. It is a daily thing. We are called to renounce lordship of our lives every day, and sometimes even multiple times a day. A.W. Tozer says it like this, In every Christian's heart there is a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. It's unfortunately can be easy to accept that Christ died for us, but hard for us to accept that we must die as well. And I don't necessarily mean physically there, we know that, but I mean the daily sacrificial dying to self. And if this isn't hard to accept, we're still prone to to sneak back up on the throne of our hearts, accidentally, without even realizing it. We're prone to go back to seeking happiness and fulfillment in taking and not giving. In scary situations, we take back control of our lives thinking that we can save ourselves. In relational conflict, we, we become the guiltless judge thinking we can and should administer justice. Even in the normal day-to-day, many of us live for comfort and ease. And I'll raise my hand first on that. And we we fight to maintain our comfortable, easy lives, which sounds a lot like being a king or a queen, 
doesn't it? And yet one of the main messages of the Bible, of which our text this morning is a microcosm, is this. Christ died for us to forgive our sins and to enable us to know that salvation and joy are found in giving and not taking. In dying to self and not living for self. In acknowledging Jesus as king and not ourselves. We've been hearing this a lot lately here at Windsor Community Church. Through Luke, but also through Dan's mini-series he titled New Life Rising, if you guys remember that, the few weeks leading up to Easter. Over the last few months, I went back, looked at some of the sermons I preached and a couple that Dan had preached. We've heard things like this. The blessed life is found in embracing the kingdom of God mindset. Suffer now, satisfaction later. Cross now, crown later. Or Dan said, powerfully, Mark, you mentioned it at the Bible study with the high schoolers, Jesus' death for our salvation is his design for our imitation. Death is the gateway to life. Dying is the gateway to living. This morning is a similar message. God thinks we need this lesson a lot. My main point this morning is this. A crucified Messiah will be followed by cruciform disciples. Cruciform just means cross-shaped. A crucified Messiah will be followed by cruciform disciples. So the structure of this morning is two points. We'll look at the cross of Christ in verses 21 and 22, and then we'll look at the cross of the Christian or the disciple in verses 23 through 27. So first, let's look at the cross of Christ. Before we dive in, let's look at the context really quick. Up to this point, Many people, including the disciples, have asked, who is this man, Jesus? He's been doing and saying some amazing things. And in the previous verses that we saw last week, Jesus has just asked his disciples, finally, who do they think he is? And Peter pipes up, you are the Christ of God. So far in Luke, Jesus has been doing miracles that prove he is the Messiah. Because he's doing the works of the Messiah that are prophesied in the Old Testament. But this is the first time his disciples have proclaimed their belief about who he is. And this little section here is a turning point in the movie. But instead of Jesus saying, after Peter says, you're the Christ, yes, finally, you get it. Now go tell everybody. Look what he says in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Jesus says this a few times throughout the Gospels, before his death and his resurrection. After his death and his resurrection, he's telling them, go tell everyone. But before, he tells them to be quiet. It's sometimes called the messianic secret. The reason he tells them not to start telling everyone that he is the Messiah is because the Jews thought the Messiah would come as a political warrior king who would overthrow the unrepentant Gentiles, in their case, the Romans, and establish the eternal throne of David. And here's the thing. They weren't completely wrong. We've said this recently. One commentator says, Silence does not mean that Jesus rejects a political messiahship. Jesus is a political messiah in Luke and Acts. He will exercise authority one day. But the point is that he will not do so at this time. The misunderstanding that is so dangerous is one of timing and not substance. 
So the misunderstanding was that the Messiah in his first coming was going to set up his earthly kingdom immediately. But that wasn't his purpose in his first coming. He came the first time not to overthrow Rome and set up his earthly kingdom, but to inaugurate his spiritual kingdom, to take care of sin, which will someday be consummated. And at his second coming, it will become the earthly political kingdom. Jesus will reign on a throne physically on earth over all the earth. God's kingdom can be defined in this way. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Or R.C. Sproul defines it this way. Anywhere God's Messiah reigns. So generally that's everywhere because Jesus reigns over everything. But specifically it's in the hearts of his people. And it's in our church right here, right now. As we joyfully declare Jesus is king. His kingdom is here. So Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom, which is the purpose of his first coming. But his disciples don't understand that. But he was about to make sure they did by telling them he's going to die. He's going to really shatter their expectations. So look with me at verse 22. It says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. This statement is amazing, would have been amazing and is amazing for many reasons. First, that the Messiah, the Christ, would be rejected and killed. The disciples would have had no category for that, and, and we wouldn't have either, so let's not be chronological snobs. And not only would he be rejected and killed, but it would be by the hands of the leaders of Israel. Yes, the Romans played their part, but the leaders of Israel were the main culprit. And this, he says, this rejection and suffering and death must happen. It will happen when King Jesus, with all authority, says something must happen, it will happen. It has been God's plan from before the foundation of the world to send Jesus into the world to purchase a people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation for God's glory and their joy. It's part of his sovereign plan. And it's because he loves them. And finally, in this statement, Jesus here, when he says the son of man and then speaks of suffering, he's connecting the son of man from Daniel 7 with the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah 53. Jesus' favorite term for himself in the Gospels is calling him, referring to himself as the Son of Man. This title comes from, as I said, Daniel chapter 7, which describes the glory and the power and coming kingdom of God's Messiah on the clouds. But in referring to rejection and death, he's declaring that he is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Many of you know of it, but I'll read a couple verses from Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 5. They say this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
Jesus is God's Messiah, but his path would not be one to quick and easy glory, but through terrible suffering. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who was crowned through becoming the sacrificial lamb. The disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus was going to do and what his death accomplished, but we do. Remember, in these two verses, he didn't mention a cross, but we know that's what he's referring to, his cross. And why? Why is he going to the cross? Why does he have to pick up a cross? Oh, you know, to sacrificially die for our sins. We all know that. Let's move on. We don't really need to be reminded of the gospel and why he had to pick up the cross. We don't need that. Let's not. I'm kidding. Thanks for laughing at me. You know me well enough and our pastors well enough. Our sin separated us from God and, and placed us under his righteous wrath. But he loved his people. And so he sent Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator of all things, the preeminent one, the great high priest. And in the eternal plan of the triune God, he left heaven. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And thereby, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And on that cross he died. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, but he rose again on the third day. And he said he would. And later he says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The cross of Christ propitiated the wrath of God. That big word propitiated just means averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. Christ's cross has saved us, and we have appropriated that salvation in time through faith in him and repentance. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I invite you to believe in Jesus Christ. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But if we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. That is God's plan of salvation. It is the only way to be saved. And come join us as we follow Jesus. Christ's cross comes before his call to discipleship. He saves us and gives us new hearts while we were sinners. And that's what enables us and motivates us to follow him in self-denial, 
and in self-sacrifice. A crucified Messiah will be followed by cruciform disciples. So let's look at the cross of the Christian, verses 23 through 27. The surprise for the disciples of Jesus wasn't just that Jesus would die, the Messiah, the Christ would die, and suffer before his glory, but that they would have to walk the same path. We'll see four things under this point. We'll see the command, the result, a warning, and a promise. So first, we see his command in verse 23. He says, it says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, said this to all all his disciples or are they back with the crowd mark's account of this scene helps us it says that jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples and then he says this so if anyone he's speaking to the disciples and to the crowd if anyone would come after or follow jesus they must do three things first he says deny himself deny self no not in the same way we deny ourselves little luxury or guilty pleasures not like denying ourselves an unnecessary purchase when we're on a budget or like uh, denying ourselves an unnecessary sweet because we're on a diet it means to renounce being the lord of your life get off the throne Dying to our own ambitions and desires and wants. John Stott says it like this. To deny, our, to deny ourselves is to behave towards ourselves. Listen to this. This is amazing. Behave towards ourselves as Peter did towards Jesus when he denied him three times. The verb is the same. He disowned him. He repudiated him. He turned his back on him. Self-denial is denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny oneself is to turn from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Now, I'm not going to use the, the Lord's name in vain, but this is what I picture Peter saying. I swear to God, I don't know who that is. And we are supposed to say to ourselves, I swear to God, I don't know me. I don't live for me. I am not king of me. It is strong language, isn't it? Being a disciple of Jesus means giving up autonomy, the autonomy of our lives and living for Christ. And without doing those things, we aren't actually following Jesus in any meaningful way. been convicted by this this week and honestly just in general being a sinful man you get home from a long day of work in our job there's a lot of giving even if you're sitting in an office by yourself and studying hard it's an emotional thing and you get home to a wonderful wife and three kids and what do you want to do guys it's father's day i'm gonna grill you now i'm gonna grill you later you want to sit 
You want to watch the hockey playoffs. You want to watch the basketball playoffs. I don't want to help you make dinner. I definitely don't want to help you clean up dinner. Audrey, Ada has a poopy diaper. I don't want to go clean it. I'd have to get off the couch. I don't want to help with bath time. Later, we're watching a movie, go in the kitchen, make myself a cup of tea, walking out to the couch, look at my wife. I made this cup of tea for you. It was for me. I wasn't even thinking of her. I mean, I could share more, but I won't. How, how are you denying yourself in the little ways? How, how are you seeing in your life that you still are prone to think about you first all the time? Do you deny yourself, brothers and sisters? Please deny yourself. The second thing he says is to take up your cross daily. Our location in history has maybe softened the shocking reality of what this means. We may relate more to take up your cross necklace, take up your cross tattoo. But as we know, that's not what Jesus is saying. I'm making a point. And even though most of us, if not all of us, have not seen someone undergo a death penalty, for us it would be like saying, Take up your electric chair. Take up your lethal injection. Take up your firing squad. Take up your guillotine. What he's saying is embrace the implement of your death. Pick it up. Hug it. Hold it. Use it. Another contemporary misunderstanding, I think that many Christians think that our cross is any kind of suffering, big or small. We go through the drive through for some fast food, and they forget our French fries, and we're like, oh, this is my cross. Especially when we get home, we, we didn't check the bag on the way out, we get all the way home, no fries, this is my cross, Lord. Or more seriously, we have a hard boss, or we're in some pretty hard relational conflict, and we think, this is my cross. There is a very real truth that God uses all of our suffering for our good and his glory. But the way that we take up our cross in those hard times is evidenced in how we respond. We take up our cross when we deny ourselves in those situations. You take up your cross when you get shorted on french fries and you don't steam inside and rage on the 18-year-old that forgot to put them in. You, you take up your cross in the relational conflict when you don't demand your own way, acknowledge your own sin, and offer grace and forgiveness. You take up your cross as you assume the best of your really hard boss. Forgive him or her for their harshness and seek to work hard for the company and for the Lord as unto him. Self-denial is, is the command Daily cross-bearing is the action. It is a spirit-empowered act of the will. The third thing he says is to follow him. This one needs less explanation. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow him. Like, don't make your own path. If we're following someone literally, then we're not choosing which path we take or where to go. 
the whole time we follow them, we aren't in charge. And that's what we're declaring with our lives when we follow Jesus. He's Lord and Master, and my life is his. And I have to do that every day. So next, let's look at the result in verse 24. Next, Jesus explains the result of this kind of discipleship or lack thereof. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, if the fruit of our lives is obedience to Jesus' command in verse 23, then we will be saved. But if we live for ourselves and remain on the throne of our hearts, then ultimately we will lose our lives. C.S. Lewis says there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. He's either king on the throne of your heart or you are. Now I would remind you all to remember that this text isn't teaching that we earn our salvation. We have to interpret this passage in light of other passages in the Bible. It doesn't come to us in a vacuum. We don't save ourselves by living a life of self-denial. It's not about our works or how we're performing in this. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through his self-sacrifice and his self-denial. The reformers said we're justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Implying that faith comes with obedience, but it's not the obedience that saves. Again, the root fruit categories are helpful here. It's the root of faith that saves. It's the fruit of obedience that, that shows our salvation, that glorifies God, that does good. For our fellow man, believer or unbeliever. So even though we'll see more of a warning in verses 25 and 26, there is a warning and a motivation in this verse. Again, for those of you in here this morning who aren't Christians, don't live for yourself. I did that, tried it, been there, done it, had the t-shirt 26 years. And I ask you, are you happy? Have you found that living for yourself and taking has really given you the joy that you want to experience and believe that you can experience. I would encourage you not to remain on the throne of your heart. Otherwise, in the end, you will lose your life. King Jesus can fill the hole in your heart. And living for him is the only way you will find the joy that you know that you can experience. Because God made you that way. Brothers and sisters, Christians in here, keep obeying. Keep dying to yourself because as you do, you show that God has saved you now and will save you on the last day. Next, let's look at the warning, verses 25 and 26. In these verses, Jesus pushes deeper into the reality of those that don't lose their lives for him. So 25 and 26 say, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Even if someone were able to gain the whole world and loses 
or forfeits himself, what would that profit him? This idea is parallel to Jesus' denial of Satan in the second temptation when Satan offered him, I'll give you the world, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no, I exist to worship God. I am God. A few illustrative examples. I'm not trying to offend anyone here. Make the point. Why would a blind person buy a million dollar painting by Vincent van Gogh? Or why would they go on a sightseeing tour of the Grand Canyon? Why would a deaf person buy a recording of Beethoven? Why would someone who has permanently lost their taste travel to Tokyo to eat sushi at Tsukiyabashi Jiro? The best sushi restaurant in the world. Why would you go there and spend all that money if you can't taste? It would be pointless. It would be worthless. If you gain the world at the cost of losing Christ, you've lost everything. And if you gain Christ at the cost of losing everything, you've gained everything. And a life lived for self would be a life that would be ashamed to be connected to Jesus. That's how it relates to the next verse. You cannot serve two masters. There are those who say Jesus is a great moral teacher or even a great prophet, but those aren't ways to be savingly connected to the Messiah. And they show a lack of willingness to submit to him as Lord and therefore to take up a cross and to follow him. To be ashamed of him and his words would be a rejection of his teaching and a refusal to confess him publicly. And he warns that for those who do that, he will be ashamed of them. That is a terrifying verse. He will be ashamed of them when he comes back in his glory, the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. Which means he won't say to this person, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But they will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Those who are ashamed of Jesus in this life will not experience his joy in the next life. But take heart, Christians, because he came for you. And Hebrews 2, 10 and 12 say this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Listen, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That is great news for the because Jesus Christ wasn't ashamed of his people, went to a cross for his people, neither will we ever be ashamed of him. In his final words on discipleship, we see a promise. Verse 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's an application here immediately for Peter, James and John, and then later the disciples, and even us in principle. The very next scene, 
that's going to be preached next week, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain and reveals his divinity to them. Not as if, as if he hasn't been revealing his divinity through Luke and the things he's doing and saying, but something like he pulls back his humanity and shows the brightness of his glory. They see a preview of what we'll all see in the consummated kingdom of God. It's an amazing scene. No kidding. I looked at who was preaching this like three months ago so I could be jealous. And it's Ryan Farr, and he's a great preacher, so I hope you're all here next week. And then after, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he shows himself to many of his disciples and then he ascends and sends the Holy Spirit. And, and all the rest of the disciples, many of the rest of the disciples, see the inauguration of the kingdom of God before they taste death. They get to see the way God has brought his kingdom to earth. And for us and for them, cruciform disciples will see the kingdom of God. We see it here and now as Jesus reigns in our hearts and in our church and in our churches but someday we too, like Peter, James, and John, will see it by sight. It'll be here in a new heavens and a new earth, and we'll see it. And we can't wait to see it. The Puritans called it the beatific vision. Glory always follows a cross. Or better, a crown always follows a cross in the kingdom of God. So let me say a few final words. I'll say it again. I really want you to remember this. A crucified Messiah will be followed by cruciform disciples. Dads, happy fathers. It's a joy to be a dad, isn't it? it's really hard and you have to like die to yourself deny yourself take up your cross follow Jesus in your parenting I encourage you and call you even as the, your younger brother in Christ for many of you to lead your family well in this I encourage you to be the chief self-denier and cross-bearer and follower of Jesus in your home that is your calling as a man and a father. Next, I want to say, there is joy in living this way. Isn't there, Christians? There is joy in living this way. The kingdom of God can be compared to a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And he covered it up. And in his joy... He went and sold everything he had, his whole life, so he could have the field. There is such joy. I have experienced joy I can barely explain. Even amidst the trials and the sufferings of following Jesus. I've said this, but God designed us to experience the most joy as we live for him and for others, not for ourselves. Even when it came to Jesus' cross, yes, there was fear and agony, but there was also joy for him. Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. A life of self-denial and self-sacrifice, a cruciform life, will be hard. But we know it's worth it. We've experienced the ways it's worth it in the here and now, and someday we can't even fathom the joy that is coming to us. It will be, as the great theologian Ryan Farr has put it, a glorious grind. It's a glorious grind. Jesus' cross was for our propitiation, but our cross is for propagation. His cross saves. Our cross spreads this news. The way people see us live in self-denial and self-sacrifice. How can you live this way? Because of my king lived this way. As we lay down our lives for King Jesus, our lives are to be reenactments, as it were, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in light of what Christ has done for us, how could we not respond in joyful obedience? One says it like this. God's grace in Christ is free, but it's never cheap. Grace is costly, for God gave up his own son for our sins. Those who follow Christ are called to a life of costly discipleship. Cheap grace says we can accept Christ as Savior, but not follow him as Lord. Cheap grace says we can have the benefit of forgiveness of sins without doing what Jesus said. Cheap grace says that God has promised to prosper us and that we will never suffer. And we don't believe or preach cheap grace either. The way of following Jesus will be hard, but infinitely and eternally worth it. Let's pray. Father, we look to Christ this morning. Remember his death on the cross, even as we are about to take communion. Lord, I pray that we as your people would not spend too long self-analyzing and self-reflecting, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, but chiefly looking to Christ and his cross and letting that motivate us and enable us to deny our own selves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do that in each one of us, your people, and that you would be drawing those who aren't yet your people to yourself, that they may experience true joy. We praise you for the joy that we've received in, in living and seeing and believing that true life is found in, in giving ourselves away and, and not living for ourselves. And we joyfully again right here right now submit to jesus as king we say jesus you are king on the throne in our hearts and not ourselves and we praise you for going to the cross for us to produce your kingship in our hearts we pray this in the precious name of the king of kings and lord of lords jesus christ